NATO enlargement, a national security threat as it provokes Russian aggression or a way to protect ourselves from the East. One, is, one thing is for sure, it is an extremely important and controversial topic that today we will try to understand. With me is Dr. James Goldgeier, professor at the American University and author of the book Evaluating NATO Enlargement. Jim, uh, one question right in the beginning. Um, I think a lot of people ask themselves that. Did NATO actually promise something to Russia? Well, this has been debated now uh, ever since 1990. And um, my own view is it's, a, it's complicated. Um, I, I don't believe there was a formal promise by NATO not to enlarge to the East. Uh, but I would say two things. One, there were discussions in 1990 during the process that led to German unification about what NATO could or couldn't do in the former East Germany as long as Soviet troops were there. Um, and so there was that discussion was part of that negotiation. In my view, more importantly, there were assurances given to the Soviet Union and then Russia that NATO would not do anything as the Soviet Union and then Russia retreated from Europe, wouldn't do anything to undermine that country's security. And in my view, NATO delivered on that. US troops were reduced by a tremendous amount. There were efforts to engage with the Russians. Uh, nuclear weapons were not put in the East as, as some in Russia feared. Uh, there was the partnership for peace with Russia. There was all sorts of ways the US and its allies tried to work with Russia. But of course, at the end of the day, the U.S. could say all it wanted to, that NATO enlargement didn't undermine Russian security. And the Russians said, well, we think it does. So I don't know how you get past that. So no formal uh, promise, at least. I, I, don't, um, I, don't believe there, I don't believe there was a formal promise made, but there are those who would disagree with that. Okay, interesting. So, how how do they think uh, then differently? Because I would th would have thought a formal promise is uh, objectively formal or not. So, in February of 1990, Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State James Baker, was in Moscow, meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, and they had a conversation about Na that NATO's jurisdiction would not extend one inch to the east. So those people who argue there was a promise say, well, see, Baker said no, not one inch to the east, or they agreed not one inch to the east. And, uh, and so there was a promise. For people like me, first of all, the conversation took place regarding Germany. And there were things in the Treaty on German Unification regarding uh, not putting NATO troops in the, in the eastern zones of Germany while the Soviet Union still had troops there, not putting nuclear weapons in, in what was the former East Germany. But also, this was part, the negotiations over German unification were just starting. And by the time they ended with the treaty in October 1990, there was, there was no promise about NATO enlargement. There were the specific statements about NATO's jurisdiction in the eastern zones of Germany. But this idea that when Baker and Gorbachev agreed not one inch to the east meant there was a formal promise, I, I just don't buy it. Now, what does include NATO enlargement? Just new members or um, also counting allies, for example? Well, it is about new members. And so, in fact, that, that unification of Germany and the inclusion of what was the former East Germany, the former German Democratic Republic, That was uh, the first part of NATO enlargement at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and then, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the end of the Cold War, uh, NATO had 16 members, 12 original members, and then four more that had joined uh, during uh, the Cold War period. And then, you know, it's gone from uh, 16 to 31, and when Sweden comes in, 32. So. You know, it's almost doubled in size since the end of the Cold War in terms of the number of members. 
So no um, meaning states that uh, are in their uh, philosophies or in their um, interest in joining NATO in the future um, and therefore adapt maybe a little bit to the NATO um, are not considered enlargement? Or yeah. you would not consider them enlargement? Yeah, I, I mean, I consider enlargement to mean the inclusion of new members. Um, now, you know, there's also the discussion about the expansion of missions. I mean, the, the kind of missions also expanded after the end of the Cold War. So there's that as well. But I think when we talk about NATO enlargement, we're really talking about the, in, the inclusion of new members. Okay, let's let, let's talk about how we talk about it, because that's basically what your book is about, right? How how to um, evaluate NATO enlargement. You and your co-author, I think, had different views on the topic, um, so that's how you got into discussion and wrote the book. Um, wh what was your conclusion? You would say. Well, so we do disagree. I mean, I think NATO enlargement was a good idea, uh, and he is skeptical of NATO enlargement. That's why we work together. Um, what we do agree on, we agree on the costs and benefits of enlargement, uh, and we agree on uh, the costs and benefits of alternatives to enlargement, but specifically on enlargement, the primary benefit was the expansion of security and stability across much of Europe. Those countries that came in were much more secure and stable than they would have been if they were outside of NATO. The main cost was that NATO enlargement contributed to the deterioration of relations with Russia. Now, the main reason that I support enlargement is that I don't think relations with Russia would look that different today without NATO enlargement. There's so many other reasons for bad relations between Russia and the West. So I think, okay, look at what it did for Central and Eastern Europe and security and stability across Europe. So it was, it was a good thing to do. Um, my co-editor, uh, Professor Schifferinson, he thinks that NATO enlargement was a primary reason why U.S.-Russia, Western relations with Russia deteriorated. And so he thinks a different type of relationship with Russia Could have been possible, and he thinks that was more important than security and stability in Central and Eastern Europe. So we agree on what the costs and benefits were, but we assign different weights to them, and so we have different views on whether enlargement was a good idea or not. How does enlargement change the NATO, basically? When new countries join, obviously um, they have different interests maybe as well, um, or in, in a kind of way. Um, what does it change? So, first of all, you know, the bigger it is, uh, the more countries sitting around the table. So discussions just involve that many different voices. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the, it's, it's more challenging for an organization to operate at 31 or 32 than it was at 12 or 16. Um, You know, a second issue is that, as you suggest, that diversity of voices. So especially states, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, a country like Poland. I mean, those countries coming in mean that you've got countries close to Russia, concerned about Russia, and their concerns about Russia and Russia's threat to their security are more prominent in NATO because of their membership in NATO. Um, and the third way that it affects NATO is that NATO, I mean, because it's an organization that at its core is there to defend all of the member states from outside aggression, when you add those countries in, it means that NATO has to do more to be able to defend them. It has more countries to defend, It's more difficult to, to defend some of these countries. You know, the threats to Spain aren't so great. The threat to Estonia is pretty great. So, um, you know, adding those countries in means that NATO has much more work to do in terms of defense and deterrence. And especially the bigger countries profit less from that, right? Well, I mean, I you know, all the countries really need to do more now because of the needs for them to step up the uh, 
development of their military capabilities so that they can help make sure that all the countries of NATO can be defended. Um, you're from the U.S. and I always ask myself the question, how in the now day and age does the U.S. profit from NATO? Well, I think for the U.S., you know, the the main idea behind involvement in NATO and the main reason that the U.S. stayed involved in NATO after the end of the Cold War and the main reason why the United States pushed for the enlargement of NATO was the experience of the United States previously in the 20th century. The, you know, the lesson for the United States that was drawn from the previous part of the 20th century was, all right, the United States had to come over and help the allies in World War I. After the end of World War I, the United States left Europe, retreated back to the U.S., and 20 years later, there was another world war. And at the end of World War II, the United States decided that it needed to stay engaged in Europe in order to protect Western Europe. And so the idea was at the end of the Cold War, okay, the lesson then is the United States shouldn't leave because otherwise you're going to have conflict in Europe and that's going to be detrimental to the U.S. And given what NATO was able to do for Western Europe, that it should do for Eastern Europe what it did for Western Europe and provide that kind of security and stability And otherwise, you would have conflict. And I think this was this idea, these lessons of history were enhanced by the war that broke out in the former Yugoslavia in 1991 and went on for four years because people pointed to that and said, you know, this is what could happen in other parts of Europe if we don't, you know, get these countries on a democratic path and bring them into NATO and hopefully the European Union as well. But still, I, I think there are, um, there are more and more voices um, in the U.S. I, I've heard. I, I'm from Germany. I, um, I'm just trying to understand the relations there. Um, that um, say also with the war in uh, Ukraine, um, why should it bother us? Why should we uh, be involved? And uh, we are we're across the ocean. Um, and that that's what i would assuming that there are these voices too with uh, nato enlargement or in general with nato from the us yeah it's interesting i would say that i mean if you look in the 1990s if you look at the george h w bush administration the bill clinton administration i mean they were really worried that after the end of the cold war the american public would return to the kind of isolationist approach that it had between world war 1 and world war 2 Uh, where it really stayed out of the affairs of Europe, uh, certainly in a, in a military standpoint. And, you know, then it seemed like the United States, sort of the public bought into the idea that the U.S. should be engaged and the United States should, you know, uh, be engaged globally. And that seemed in public opinion, there seemed to be strong support for that. I would say that starts to break down after the Iraq war of 2003. There's a lot of concern. The United States is overextended in the world, you know, shouldn't be involved in so many places. And I would say with respect to Europe, you have this strong uh, view now within the Republican Party in particular that the United States um, doesn't get much from being engaged in Europe. It's costly to the U.S. Everything should be about China now. And the Europeans are rich countries. They should just take care of their own defense. A lot of this comes from the Donald Trump approach to world affairs. Uh, Trump, going back decades, has had this view that U.S. allies got rich, countries like Germany and Japan, because the United States defended them and they could focus on economic development and U.S. paid for all the defense. And so they got rich and, you know, Donald Trump was always talking about the United States being a sucker and that allies took advantage of it. And, you know, his, his approach is definitely that the U.S. shouldn't be doing these kinds of things in Europe, shouldn't be engaged with NATO. And I think we could expect if he wins the presidency a year from now, That he would look to take the United States out of NATO as he threatened to do when he was president before. 
Yeah, but, but what's the uh, counter argument to that? Why? Th that's what I'm asking. Why? Yeah. What are the benefits aside from um, it, it would be the right thing, maybe? Or um, what are the benefits to the U.S. directly? So I think that, again, this goes back to the lessons of of the 20th century. You know, whether you buy, you know, I think it's important for anybody's position on this. Do you buy this notion or not? I, the U.S. The, those who drew the lesson that U.S. engagement was important took the lesson that the U.S. the cost mm -hmm. the U.S. had to pay getting involved in World War One, getting involved in World War Two, were extremely high. And that if the United States leaves Europe, that the potential for conflict in Europe goes up dramatically, and that the United States would then get drawn back in later at a much higher cost. I mean, the cost right now for the United States isn't that high. The United States, you know, I mean, it spends a lot on defense, but that's not just about Europe. And currently, It's not directly involved in the war in Ukraine in terms of fighting. It is providing Ukraine military assistance, and Ukrainians are fighting and dying to defend themselves against Russia and um, very much uh, degrading the Russian military capabilities, which means Russia is posing less of a threat to the U.S. So I think the United States' involvement in the war between Russia and Ukraine is actually quite beneficial from a U.S. security standpoint because Ukraine is is uh, making the Russian military much, le much less powerful and threatening than it would be otherwise. Uh, when we talk about NATO enlargement, how large could the NATO technically become? So the NATO by treaty, uh, the original treaty was signed in 1949 and Article 10 of the treaty says that NATO can invite any European state that furthers the principles of the alliance and contributes to alliance security to join. So we're talking about an institution that is made up of two countries in North America, the United States and Canada, and then the rest of the members are European, and any new members would be European. So there is a finite number of countries left. Uh, that could be invited to join. Uh, and of course, the most uh, controversial issue right now is the question about whether Ukraine would join NATO, and if so, when would it join NATO, given that it is currently at war with Russia. And what is your take on that? Well, I, I, my views have evolved on that, actually. I used to think that It probably did not make sense for NATO to extend that far. Um, uh, but I now currently believe that the only way to deter the future Russia, Russian aggression against Ukraine, for which we're spending a lot to support it, the only way to prevent that in the future uh, is for Ukraine to join NATO. Because what we have learned is that Russia does not attack NATO members militarily. I mean, You've got all these supplies coming in through Poland, for example, um, from Romania uh, into Ukraine. Uh, Russia's not attacking Poland and Romania because they're NATO members. It doesn't want a war with NATO. So I think that that NATO that Ukraine should come in, and I I feel like that should especially be true if there is a peace deal to end the war. That it's especially true. If Ukraine is being asked to give up territory that Russia currently occupies as part of a peace deal, it seems to me that what's left of Ukraine, the sovereign Ukraine, should be able to come into NATO at that point uh, in order to, to, to deter, deter future Russian aggression. Okay, so the point in time would be after the war, directly after the war. Best. Um, what What would happen if all uh, or most uh, the European countries that border Russia, um, if they would all join, how, how do you think Russia would react to that? Well, I mean, it certainly wouldn't react very well. Um, and, you know, that was my caution 15 years ago when this was really being discussed uh, in earnest. 
But, you know, at this point, you know, Russia has has done the provoking. So, uh, you know, I think the idea about provoking Russia is sort of a moot point, given the given the Russian aggression. Keep in mind, I mean, this was this was something that was discussed in the 90s. You know, I don't know that anybody ever thought this would really happen, but Russia is a European country as well. And, you know, the idea in the 90s was if Russia continued on a democratic direction that maybe it too could join NATO. Now, it seems, I mean, NATO would be a completely different institution uh, if Russia were a member. But um, but theoretically, the door is, I mean, the door should remain open, I believe, because of the treaty, the door should remain open to any European country. I don't, I don't really think we're going to see i mean we we could see ukraine come in as part of a as part of a deal to end the war uh other countries that are talked about are countries like georgia and moldova uh i don't think that's likely to happen but theoretically uh you know they are european countries so uh, they could be invited now russia joining nato was it always a um possibility that was that was really possible, like not just formally, but um, so that could actually happen. So I, it was discussed um, on and off between 1991 and 2001. The first time it was raised, as far as I know, um, at the end of 1991, you may remember at the end of 1991, the Soviet Union fell apart. But right before that, NATO had a meeting with the representatives of the countries that had been part of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. And in a very dramatic moment, the Soviet ambassador left the room, came back in and said, I no longer represent the Soviet Union. I represent the Russian Federation. And my president, Boris Yeltsin, wants to join NATO. So I was like, wow, okay. You know, at the time, there was a lot of hope for democratic Russia. And whenever Clinton, Bill Clinton, President Clinton and Boris Yeltsin talked about this in the 90s, there was, you know, Clinton would always say to him, you know, Boris, you know, NATO, Russia could become a member too, which, you know, Yeltsin didn't really think was going to happen. But occasionally he would say, oh, that, you know, we should become a member. And then Putin, after he first came into office, he also raised the idea of Russia becoming a member. And there was um, some discussion in the U.S. government in 2001 uh, in the policy planning staff at the State Department about this. But, um, you know, I think it was more theoretical than practical because it, it would mean a completely different institution. But certainly if you think the institution is largely there because of the Russian threat, you know, a different kind of Russia that came into NATO, you wouldn't need the same institution you have today. So, you know, I don't think we should just dismiss it out of hand, but, uh, it, you know, it looks a lot different in 2023 than it did in 1998 or nine. Would the threat of Russia uh, be gone immediately as it joins uh, the NATO? Well, I mean, it would, I mean, again, it would have to be such a different Russia, a democratic Russia that wanted to be part of the West, that the threat would essentially be gone at that point anyway, because of what Russia had become. So, um, you know, it, it would, it would, that kind that Russia would then be welcomed as part of the West. That was the dream in the nineties that a Russia would evolve I mean, in such a way that it could be well, part of the West. My, my question in a way is, I guess, um, If that had happened, and uh, but now Russia is a different Russia right. again under Putin, um, and it, it attacked uh, Ukraine, uh, how would the situation be different? Yeah, well, that I mean, that's an interesting point, right? If it, had come, I mean, it does does make you re realize that uh, you want to be really sure about the direction a country's going uh, before you let it in, and of course, you know, this is the discussion about Hungary. You know, Hungary went on the path to democracy. Uh, and then in recent years under under Viktor Orban, it has gone in an authoritarian direction and you can't kick it out. You know, there's no provision in NATO to kick a country out. So um, I think, you know, it's interesting. We talk about Russia and NATO. I think the bigger concern was Russia having the 
long border it has with China, uh, that you know, then NATO would have a very long border with China, and and uh, that that would be where the security challenge uh, came in. I think when people talked about Russia coming in in the '90s, I think the vision was that Ukraine would come in as well uh, with that. But you know, again, it was a pretty abstract theoretical notion. Was that always uh, at any time the idea of uh, NATO expanding? Um greater as uh, than than just europe when you now point uh point to uh, china or russia um bordering china then um obviously the uh conflicts and the things you have to uh, think about expand uh are greater than just the european region yeah i mean i think um so again by treaty nato is is open to European countries, um, you know, having already included Canada and the U.S. at the beginning. So I don't think it. I, I I argued many many years ago that it should look at taking in democracies in other parts of the world. But uh, what it has done with those countries, especially in the Indo-Pacific, so Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand are partners with NATO. Uh, the representatives have. Uh, the leaders have come to the last two summits, uh, NATO summits in 2023, 2022. So those partnerships are increasing. Those those countries aren't, they're not going to be, I don't think they would want to become members of NATO. I don't think NATO would want them to become members of NATO. But NATO is interested in developing those partnerships because the, the member states of NATO do have interests uh, in other parts of the world. And certainly The threat of China, the threat China poses, is looming large for everyone. And now these partnerships, um, can you elaborate more on them? Um, what do they mean actually? What are the um, implementations the countries may have to uh, make? So, I, you know, at this point, I think it's largely consultations. Um, I think we'll see more and more. Um, uh, potential role for military exercises. Uh, there was talk, so before the 2023 summit in the summer uh, in Vilnius, there was talk of establishing a NATO liaison office in Tokyo so that NATO would have a presence in Japan and would work more closely with its partners in the region. Uh, French President Macron uh, said no, no way. To provocative toward China. Uh, and so that idea was shelved. But I think that's, you know, for a lot of people, I think that's sort of the kind of idea to just create an opportunity for more dialogue, consultation, sharing of information, potential for military exercises together. Uh, do NATO partners have to have the same characteristics as uh, NATO members? So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's why you've got Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, New Zealand. You got you. You got to be a democratic country to to be able to be uh, to be that to be a partner in that way. Now, uh, you know, NATO when it was engaged in Afghanistan had partners all all sorts of partners uh, in the um, in the in the operation in Afghanistan. But in terms of in terms of these kinds of partnerships. Uh, it's looking for other democracies to partner with. Um, which countries currently want to join NATO? So, of course, Sweden is hoping that it gets uh, Turkey and Hungary to ratify its accession to NATO. That's what we're waiting for now. Um, Ukraine, you know, and you got to remember with Ukraine, Prior to Putin's 2014 invasion, uh, there wasn't really a strong sentiment within Ukraine about joining NATO. I mean, the, the, there was a lot of opposition to the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. And uh, it's, it's Putin's aggression from, from 2014 to the present that has created the desire of Ukraine to join, join NATO. Um, I, I think, you know, I mean, there's 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 talk of Georgia and Moldova on and off. I mean, it's dependent. Georgia, when Georgia was uh, more democratic 
a few years ago, uh, there was more talk about the potential for joining, for for joy, Georgia joining, Georgia wanting to join. Um, we are seeing the accession talks of Georgia with the European Union, um, and same for for Ukraine and and Moldova with the European Union. Uh, I I think you know, I think we're pretty much at the end of the enlargement process. Uh, the big question mark really is Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's desire to join, and what the West will do. It sent a signal of some kind in the summer. That was a little ambivalent because there's a lot of disagreement within NATO. Uh, but uh, and I think Ukraine has big expectations. NATO's 75th anniversary summit is in Washington next summer, July of 2024. Ukraine would really like to be on a path to join. Uh, I don't know whether that's going to happen, but I think that's the big question mark right now. Um, now, do all these countries have uh, the same goal with joining NATO, meaning um, the threat, avoiding the threat of Russia? So, um, I mean, it's certainly a common theme. I think that, I mean, remember, this process started in the 1990s, and certainly countries like Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic and then Slovakia and and the Baltic countries uh, Baltic countries I mean certainly they were concerned that Russia might return to being an aggressive power and wanted to be protected I think what it, what they really wanted was to be part of the west And to be able to join NATO and the European Union and to really get the benefits of being in the West after having been under communist rule for so long. Um, I mean, there are other countries uh, uh, like, uh, you know, like Croatia or Montenegro, North Macedonia. I mean, these countries, I mean, they don't they don't face. a. I mean, Russia has unfortunately been uh, active in the Balkans in ways that aren't helpful to these countries, but they don't face the same kind of threat. But uh you know i think i think number one was really becoming part of the west uh and then uh for the countries that are closest to russia certainly uh wanting to be protected and you know look at finland and sweden i mean these are two countries that who could have ever imagined that they would want to join nato i mean they they were not i mean they were partners but you know they were formally non-aligned um you know long history of of not Uh, being in an alliance and and with the expansion of Russia's war against Ukraine in February of 2022, they both said, we want in, we want protection. Uh, so that was a pretty extraordinary moment. Um, you mentioned Georgia also as a country that wants to join NATO. Um, I actually Googled it real quick because I, I, I thought Georgia, that's Asia, isn't it? Um, now Google says it's Europe and Asia. Um, but is that a debate point uh, as to whether it should come in or not? Because it's so far out from the other countries, right? Well, it's a, de it's a debate point, not so much geography, because I think there are a lot of people who consider the Caucasus to be Europe. Um, and so... Uh, but it's really more George. I mean, there's been two issues. One is the Russian reaction to it, which for a lot of countries, they just don't want to deal with it. And the other is politically, Georgia um, has gone in a direction that takes it further from really being under consideration for uh, NATO membership and, uh, you know, high hopes for, for Georgian democracy that existed previously. Uh, you know, this is it's become more of a concern. So I don't, I don't think this is a live issue, but it is important to remember in 2008 at the NATO summit in Bucharest, NATO, the summit declaration, which was a compromise formed when the United States was not able to get allies to agree that Ukraine and Georgia could formally go on what was called a membership action plan. So they'd be on a, on a process, formal process for membership, the statement said, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Uh, so um, 
that suggests that eventually they will become members of NATO. But um, it, right now, it's really only a live issue for Ukraine. Uh, there's a, um, I think the main or the NATO's first secretary general, I read or I actually heard in one of your uh, podcasts, so you already know this quote, said he, um, uh, NATO existed for Europe to keep Americans in, Germans down and Russians out. How applicable is that in today's time, especially coming from a German and reading Germans down? Um, <laughs> what would you say to that? You know, it's really interesting, right? So it's it's definitely there to keep the Americans in Europe. And there's no question about that, major priority. And I think in the 90s, the hope was that it wouldn't really be needed to keep Russia out. But of course, it's been more and more needed to keep Russia out. Um, I think the attitude, certainly the US attitude toward Germany uh, has been one of very strong support for more and more German capability. It's interesting, when Germany unified in 1990, there were a lot of, I mean, you know, the French president, the British prime minister, Mrs. Thatcher, I mean, I mean, they were expressing huge opposition to German unification because they feared Germany. And, you know, I remember talking to German friends at the time who were really, they were hurt. They were really insulted. It's like, what do they think we're going to do? Like, we're not the Germany of the 1940s. And I think that, I mean, in the United States, of course, was very supportive of German unification. Um, I, I think the United States would love to see Germany develop more military capability and become a stronger member of NATO. Uh, but, you know, there's no question that Germany's relations with its neighbors, it's a complicated relationship. And, you know, hopefully because of the longstanding um, engagement through the European Union and, and the fact that 2023 is a very different world than 1943, thank God, uh, that, you know, we don't have that concern. But I, I think there are probably still some people who think that that, uh, that statement from the very beginning about the Americans in, the Germans down, the Russians out, I, I think you probably still have, have people who think, yeah, let's, let's keep it that way. Now, in terms of U.S.-NATO policy, uh, there um, will soon be uh, elections in the U.S. And, um, I mean, we can't go through all of them, but I would... Uh, I would like to ask you uh, to a few of the candidates, um, what do you think their, or maybe you know uh, their NATO, um, their stance on NATO is. So, uh, for example, you already mentioned Trump. Um, um, what, what is the current elected president, Biden? Um, what is his stance? So, Joe Biden is a hugely strong supporter of NATO. And, you know, he's been involved in American politics for more than 50 years. Uh, he was in the Senate for a long time. He was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was Barack Obama's vice president, now president since January of 2021. He's a hugely strong supporter of NATO. And he's demonstrated that in this war between Russia and Ukraine with the strong NATO response and his ability to lead that NATO response. So, I, you know, I. I think Europeans very much hope that Joe Biden gets reelected. Is that the usual tendency for uh, Democrats or is that uh, well, not possible? So, so NATO has had strong bipartisan support all along. Um, but it, the Republican support is eroding thanks to Donald Trump. And this is this is where it gets interesting in the Republican Party. If you look at sort of traditional Republicans, like the Senate Majority Leader, Uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who is who leads the Republicans in in the U.S. Senate, uh, he went to the Munich Security Conference with a delegation last February, just to deliver the message: Don't worry, Republicans support NATO, and that's true for his type of Republican. But that that's getting less and less true within the Republican Party, and. The supporters of Donald Trump are much less prone to support NATO. 
much more skeptical of U.S. involvement. And, you know, there there is talk of the Senate. I mean, it's an interesting question for in U.S. politics, because to join a treaty, you have to have two thirds of the Senate vote in favor to confirm, to ratify a treaty. So like when NATO was formed in 1949, for the U.S. to enter, you had to have a two thirds of the Senate vote to ratify that. But uh, a president could just take the U.S. out of a treaty. So there are members of Congress who really want to lock down by law that president can't do that and can't take the U.S. out of NATO. But um, I I think, you know, I think we should all worry that if Donald, there are lots of reasons to worry about Donald Trump becoming president, but certainly from a foreign policy standpoint, taking the U.S. out of NATO, I think, is a real possibility. Another Republican candidates, for example, um, Vivek and yeah. uh, DeSantis, yeah. what, are, what is their sense? Well, you know, they're sort of, I mean, the problem is, so uh, those guys are trying to go after, they're trying to get the Trump voters away from Trump, which they don't seem to be getting anywhere on. But so they've sort of adopted Trump-like positions. Uh, and then you have, then again, you have the more traditional types like a Nikki Haley or Chris Christie. I mean, these folks who are more in the traditional mode of it's important to support Mike Pence when he was in the race. And of course, he's dropped out since. But, you know, U.S. has to support NATO. U.S. has to support Ukraine. Russia's a threat. Uh, U.S. needs to be engaged. So, uh, but, you know, there doesn't look like there's anybody in the Republican Party who can defeat Donald Trump. So, um, but, you know, I, I mean, Nikki Haley has a much more traditional type of, the Republicans traditionally have always been hugely supportive uh, of America's alliances and, and of NATO. Uh, going more global, um I was wondering how do non, I mean, this is obviously different around the world, but how do non-NATO states uh, view NATO? Maybe is it possible to uh, group some country to make some groups of some countries and um, maybe see, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, African countries view NATO in that way, um, South American in that way? I don't, I don't know that you have strong views about NATO in most parts of the world. I mean, you have strong views about certain countries within NATO. So, for example, in Africa, there are a lot of strong views about France um, in uh, in parts of Africa, for example. The, I, I mean, what you did, what you have seen since February 2022, which is very striking, is that there are a lot of countries in what we call the global South that. Um, and, you know, and it's not a great term. So, you know, I, I, I hope somebody will come up with a better one. But, uh, you know, because developing world, I mean, that's also not not a, not a great term either. But, you know, countries, you know, talk about the global south, talk about Africa, talk about South America, um, talk about South Asia. I mean, there's what's been striking since February of 2022 is. A lot of skepticism about the NATO argument that the problem is Russia. I mean, Russia says NATO provoked us. And there are a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world that seem to accept that and buy that and and don't support the NATO action um, to help Ukraine. Uh, and also feel like, I mean, you know, the attitude towards the West, typically there's a lot of of belief that the West is hypocritical, you know, yeah, it's supporting Ukraine against this Russian aggression, but, you know, when it comes to aggression elsewhere, um, it doesn't, it doesn't do the same thing. And so I think you see a lot of, you see a lot of skepticism generally about the West. I don't, I don't know that people know a huge amount about NATO, but, you know, there's certainly skepticism about U.S. intentions, about certainly European countries. And their intentions, you know, as formerly colonial powers. Um, is there anything else I should have asked you, or anything else that you want to add to the NATO uh, topic? Otherwise, I would move on to another one. I think we can move on.
Okay, because uh, I actually saw, um, I, I didn't tell you this, I know, I'm sorry, but I actually saw you wrote a new book, uh, Foreign Policy Careers for PhDs, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I found, um, I have not read, but I found uh, the topic extremely interesting. Um, um, and I wanted to ask you, first of all, I wanted to ask you, uh, you obviously probably, are you probably writing this from an American standpoint? Um, um, is it usual in the US uh, to first study um, uh, study international relations or w what is the gateway um, into uh, foreign policy? Yeah, so um, thank you for mentioning the book. This was, the, the reason that um, my co-author and I wrote that book is, Uh, there, so there are a lot of people who go for PhDs in international relations, political science, history, and other fields who want to become professors. They want to become professors in political science departments or history departments or schools of international affairs. But sometimes those PhDs decide they don't want to be professors. They want to do something else. Or sometimes they don't get an academic job. And then they're like, well, I'd love to work in foreign policy, but I don't know how. My co-author and I, for years, we would hear from PhDs, hey, can you help me think about how to get a job in Washington? The book is very Washington-focused, but I think it has lessons for PhDs elsewhere as well, because what we, what we, what we do is we try to talk about the skills you can gain in a PhD program that can be useful for policy work. And then particularly asking yourself what kind of work you like to do. Do you like to work by yourself? Do you like to work in a team? Um, do you like to do more what analytical? What possibilities are there? Hmm? Maybe, maybe uh, what, what uh, possibilities even are there? What kind of um, maybe uh, groups of jobs um, are out there? So, for example, in the U.S. context, you know, we, are, we, we say to PhDs, if you are looking for a job, that is very similar to what you do in your PhD program, the kind of research, you know, doing research on your own analysis. Um, you know, you might want to go to a think tank uh, or you might want to go to work in the intelligence community or I mean, there's more teamwork in the intelligence community, the same kind of analytical work, or you might want to go work We have something called the Congressional Research Service, which supports uh, members of Congress and, and provides research. But for those people who want sort of more direct action, they, in fact, one of the reasons they don't want to be professors is because they want to be more in the action. Um, you know, working for the State Department or working for a non-governmental organization out in the field, uh, working for an international organization. I mean, there's There's lots of different kinds of, of, of organizations out there that do value research skills, but you're really doing more applied work. And that's really the question is, compared to a professor who's writing and thinking, you know, theoretical thoughts and maybe tries to apply them, I, I try my own work, but, you know, I'm still writing from my office. You know, for those people who really want to get out, they want to work in the field, they want to work in development, uh, they want to work on peace building, you know, you know, for those kinds of people, working for a non-governmental organization can be very exciting work. And, and that will steer them in that direction as opposed to, for example, going to work in a think tank, which is sort of like working at a university, except without the students. Uh, for those people, or at least for me, um, what also would be interesting is um, you, how you actually, uh, or what kind of media do you consume and uh, how you consume media or news in general, how you, f uh, to form an opinion, to form, um, yeah. That is a great question in a world in which Twitter is not what it was before. Because the huge value of Twitter previously was that if you followed people who are experts on the Middle East or South Asia or Latin America, whatever it is, 
or you followed people who are experts on nuclear weapons or, you know, whatever the topic is, they would point you toward the key new articles or books that were out that you should be reading. And what it, it was an incredible service. Because um, otherwise you're going, you know, okay, I go to the Washington Post, I go to the New York Times, I'm going to go to The Economist, I'm going to go to the Brookings website, see what's, what's going up there. You know, um, uh, certain podcast, you know, National Public Radio, New York Times podcasts or whatever. I mean, you're, you're, it, it's, a, it's a very inefficient process. And Twitter, when it was Twitter, uh, before Elon Musk took it over, uh, provided that incredible service. And I think uh, really finding good information is much, I mean, it requires a lot more work on our, each of our parts to find that information than it was when it would just show up in your feed and we're like, oh, that's it. Oh, you know, I, you know, that person's a great expert on the Middle East. Um, I'm so glad that I see them in my feed talking about the Israel-Hamas war and telling me what I should be reading about that. Um, and, you know, on X, uh, it just doesn't, I don't know what's, what the issues are with the algorithms, but uh, it just doesn't work the way, the way Twitter did. So do you have a solution? Uh, you yeah, for bring back Twitter. Get the, bring back the old <laughs> Twitter. That's, that's the solution. I mean, what are you, what are you current, uh, currently doing? Um, what are you currently reading? Then? Um, I am, um, I'm uh, reading a, I'm, I'm reviewing, there, there are a couple, I mean, I, I shouldn't say what they are because I'm, I'm peer reviewing manuscripts for university presses, but there are a couple new books that are in the works on NATO Uh, and so uh, hopefully uh, those are going to be published, um, you know, by their authors in a year or so. And uh, and I'm learning a lot from reading the manuscripts, but uh, hopefully I can provide some helpful comments. And then uh, we'll uh, hopefully we'll see those books next year. and We'll have uh, people will be able to learn that much more about NATO than they than they did before. Um, I will go over to our second segment now. Um, that is some rapid fire questions. Um, so I will ask you to answer in around about uh, two to three sentences. And um, <clears throat> note some of these um, may not me may not be related to uh, your area of research or um, NATO. Um, some of these may just be uh, personal questions. Um, to start with a personal one, if you had a big poster, let's say on Times Square, everybody would see it. Uh, what would you put on it? Uh, I would uh, say that, um, uh, I, well, I would put on it peace and love. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? Uh, I, don't, I don't think I have a favorite quote, actually. Uh, what would you have liked to known when you were 20? Um, I, I suppose when I was 20, given that there was nothing, there was no internet and social media, I would have loved to have known what a world was going to be like when I didn't have to type my papers on a typewriter. A controversial opinion. I believe what almost nobody else does. <laughs> That a controversial opinion of mine? Yes. Uh, yes. Is there something that comes to mind? Um, I'm not really a very, uh, I'm not really a very controversial person. Uh, but I guess I would say um, it's, it's probably controversial right now on college campuses in the United States because there's so much turmoil over the Israel-Hamas war, but I guess it would be controversial of me to say that I think we should, I think it shouldn't be that hard to strike a balance between ensuring that people are free to express what they want, their views they want to express, and we should uh, support freedom of speech. Uh, but when that speech uh, becomes threatening towards, threat, threatens violence, 
uh, towards other people, uh, that's where we have to draw the line. What's your newest, biggest insight? Well, I, you know, we, we talked before about the need for Ukraine to join NATO and that I, I that my views have changed, that I, I, that was not something that I believed previously, but have come to it during this in 2023, have come to this view that the only way for Ukraine to be secure uh, is for it to join NATO. And the only way for us to have security and stability there is for Ukraine to become a member of NATO. So for me, uh, that was an insight uh, of uh, 2023. What do you see as uh, the biggest problem currently in your area? Um, well, I mean, if, if we take my area being international security, I think the number one challenge, well, we have two challenges going forward. One, We have an existential threat posed by climate change that we seem unable to address. And certainly in the United States, politically, we seem unable to address it. And two, the problem of the US-China relations, how do we keep that from uh, developing into a war? I mean, you know, we should not want a war between the United States and China. And I worry that the odds of that happening are, um, going up. How would you spend $10 billion to make the world a better place? Um, well, I, I think, you know, just getting back to the, to the existential threat of climate change. I mean, I think that research, the, the number one thing we have to do is to, uh, have research, uh, on, uh, how we can, um, mitigate the the impact of climate change to develop resilience on climate change. And of course, uh, you know, there's a lot of poverty in, in, in the world. So, uh, you know, hopefully we could use some of that money to alleviate poverty. Um, I actually have one question that is, that might be a little longer, uh, needed it might be needed more time to answer than just two to three sentences but i still want to ask it um that is um now with the war in israel gaza um and uh the the different opinions on it within nato uh, for example turkey and um uh, the us or turkey and many other NATO states, uh, Germany, for example, as well. Um, what, what does it mean for NATO, these conflicting views? So it, it's hugely difficult. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's important that people remember that this war started with terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel on October 7th. And uh, it is natural for Israel to want to respond against that and to, to prevent that kind of a attack from occurring in the future. Um, but it's clear that as Israel goes about with this military activity, that it, it does need, I mean, I, I think, Israel understands that it needs to be mindful about the civilian casualties in Gaza. I mean, you know, these are higher and higher every day. Secretary of State Blinken has noted that, you know, the level of civilian casualties uh, is too high. It is too high. And I think it's natural that you're going to have differences within NATO about the balance between supporting Israel and its need to restore deterrence and to create a situation where you don't have these attacks again in the future, a balance between that and, you know, believing that, I mean, Palestinian civilians, citizens in Gaza, they have a right to life. And, uh, You know, if they're civilians, they shouldn't be attacked by military force. 
uh, and uh, I think that it's it's natural to face difficulties in thinking about the balance of those two things. Uh, you know, I hope the hostages are released. I hope civilian casualties in Gaza are kept to a very to a minimum going forward. I, you know, it is a very um, you know, it's a very terrible situation. And I think the, I think debate and division within NATO over this is very natural uh, given what has unfolded. Thank you very much. Um, Jim, uh, for ev anyone who wants to uh, know more about um, his ideas and insights on uh, NATO, uh, get his book. NATO and evaluating NATO enlargement and um, it will be also linked down in the description. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It was great to speak with you.